Think about your life. Every day you wake up and fight to live in freedom and against fear. But Christ has already won the battle for our freedom. We didn't earn it. The battle was won when Jesus died on the cross. We don't deserve it. He gives us grace because of his great love for us. And our freedom was secured when Christ rose from the dead. The grace of God gives us freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom to live the life he calls us to. We aren't saved by trying harder. We aren't saved by trying to be good. Only Jesus can save us and set us free. So enjoy God's gift of grace in your life. Be at peace and live in freedom. Well, I want to welcome everyone here today. We're so grateful, especially to those of you who are our guests today. We're so grateful that God has brought you to Sugar Creek, and and, uh, it is just a wonderful opportunity for us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with you. This has been a tough weather week this last week, hasn't it been? Seems like three or four times now every year that there are some flooding in Houston, and I think we are the flooding capital of the world, and it happened yet again. And there are some who experienced flooding this last week in Houston, and a whole lot of people that experienced flooding in Beaumont, and there are some hurting people today. And I want us to pause for just a moment. I want us to pray for people that are going through a hard time today, and I want us to lift them in prayer. Let's do it. Father, we come to you today, and oh, Father, we pray that you would be with some people this week that lost a loved one because of the waters. And that you would help them and comfort them and be with them today. And Father, for those whose homes were flooded, whose businesses were flooded, and they lost so much, oh God, we ask that you would be with those in Houston that have gone through this and those in Beaumont that have gone through this kind of hurt and pain. We pray that you'd be with the churches that are around these regions as they reach out and care for people and love people and help people. We pray that you would give them the resources that they need and the help that they need to take care of others. And we pray, Father, that there would be some, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of heartache, that there would be some who would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior even through these days. So bless and help and encourage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every religion in the world, every religion in the world has one big idea. And the big idea is this, work hard, do your best, live as good of a life as you can, cross your fingers, and hope for the best. Hope that somehow, some way, when you die, you will go to heaven. And every single religion in the world, every single one, has this as its big idea. I was talking to a guy just a few months ago who said to me, he's, he's a member of another religion, and he, and he said to me, look, I have done my very best, I have worked so hard, I have tried so hard, but I already know 
that God could decide to ignore all of my good deeds and I would still go to hell when I die. I just have to hope for the best. And after I die, I'll find out what's going to happen. It's a little late at that point. Every religion in the world has this as its big idea except for Christianity. I don't really consider Christianity a religion. I consider it a relationship with a living God. But Christianity teaches something very different than what I've just described. The Bible teaches that none of us could ever be good enough for heaven. None of us could ever do enough good deeds that would ever earn our way into heaven. It's a, it's a lost cause. None of us could ever be good enough. And that is why God sent us a Savior in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus never sinned. And yet He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He paid the price for our sin on the cross. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, conquering death and hell and sin. He rose again from the grave, and he offers to us the gift of eternal life. And he says, if by faith we would be willing to receive Jesus Christ into our heart, he'll save us and forgive us and cleanse us and make us a brand new person from the inside out. And that you and I can live a life knowing that we know that we know that we will spend eternity in heaven because it's not up to us, it's up to Him. It's not because of us, it's because of Him. We can live in that kind of assurity. This is the greatest good news of the whole world. The salvation of Jesus Christ. It's true. And this is what the book of Galatians is all about. Well, doesn't God want us to be good people? Doesn't he want us to do good things to each other and for each other? Absolutely. But if you think about it, if a person is trying to somehow climb their way up to heaven by their good deeds, by doing good deeds to others, the motive for doing those good deeds is not about loving others. It is totally self-centered and selfish. I'm only doing these good deeds so I can get myself into heaven. But if we receive Christ as our Savior, and He saves us not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of what He did, and now, out of our love for God, we do good deeds for God and to others, and our love for God and our love for others, and we do good things for them. Now we do it out of love. We're not doing it for selfish reasons. We're doing it out of an expression of love to God. It's the motive. It's the difference of motive of why we do the good deeds we do. Yes, the very moment we receive Christ, God says, I want you to live the rest of your life loving me and loving others and doing everything you can do to express that love. I want you to pour your life out in caring 
for me and for others. But the motive is totally different. We're in the book of Galatians in the New Testament these days in a series that is entitled How to Live in Freedom. We've been given freedom. We've been given the greatest freedom of all. We don't have to stay on the treadmill trying to save ourselves. We've been set free to love God with no ulterior motive but that we just love God. It is a freedom that we've been given in Christ. So how do we live in this freedom? And that is what this book is all about. Last week, God shared with us through his word the power of affirmation. We all need it. We all need encouragement. We all need affirmation from the youngest to the oldest, from the great to the, to the smallest. It, all of us are in need All of us are in need of encouragement from time to time in our life and affirmation from time to time in our life. But this morning, I want to talk about the fact of when affirmation can become too great. Affirmation becomes too important to our lives. It is very possible that affirmation and encouragement can become so important to our lives that we become people pleasers. You ever met a people pleaser? We become people pleasers. And this morning I want to talk to you about how to be freed from being a people pleaser. We're looking in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 16. And when we come to verse 11, it is the shocker. Verse 11 is a shocker of a verse. We never saw this one coming. Listen to what it says. But when Peter came to Antioch, I, it's the Apostle Paul that is speaking, he's the one that writes the book of Galatians, I, the Apostle Paul, had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. This comes out of nowhere. Here are the two biggest guys, the two biggest heroes of the New Testament. Outside of Jesus, the two biggest guys in the the New Testament is Peter and Paul. And here they are fighting. Here is Paul getting in the face of Peter and telling him off in front of others. What is going on? And how does this apply to our lives today? Well, to understand this passage, we've got to get the backstory to the confrontation between Peter and and Paul. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament is filled with rules and regulations and laws about how it is that a person is to live their lives. Some of those rules and regulations and laws have to do with how do we express love to God, how we express love to each other. These are great. But also, what clothes we should wear or not wear, what, what foods we should eat or not eat. This is where all the kosher laws came from. And, and even how it is that we are to treat Gentiles. A Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish, which means 99.9% of the entire population of the world. If you've been reading the Old Testament, you come across the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus has like one million rules and regulations to live by. It's not really a million. It just kind of feels like a million as you're reading through the book of Leviticus. 
But here's the truth. Every single one of these rules and laws and regulations have a very good reason for existence. Every one of them are legitimate in order to accomplish the plan of God through the Messiah. All of them were so important to make sure that God's promise of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, would take place exactly the way that God laid out. But when Jesus Christ comes, He actually fulfills all the Mosaic law. He actually fulfills all the rules and regulations. And in essence, what happens at the coming of Jesus Christ, all of these rules and laws and rituals now have no meaning because Jesus has been the fulfillment of them all. All of them were actually looking to the coming of the Messiah. And now that the Messiah has come, God wants the good news of Jesus Christ to reach the entire world, not just Jews, and bring all of mankind to himself. That meant that the simple gospel of Christ, that salvation through faith in Christ alone, was for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. What it means is, no matter what the shade of our skin is, the color of our skin, no matter what our ethnic origin, no matter what country in the world we're from, it is God's intention that he brings all of us together to be one great family of God in Jesus Christ. That is what this whole book of Galatians is about. The transition for Jewish people in the first century that came to faith in Christ. There were many who came to faith in Christ that were Jews, Jews, and now they're Messianic Jews that have accepted the Messiah. The transition that they had to go through from their upbringing of all the laws, all the rituals, and all the pushing away of the Gentiles was very difficult of now receiving and loving people that they were once taught to push away. It was very difficult. There's a story about Peter, Jewish Peter, in which all of a sudden, out of heaven, as he's having this dream, this vision, out of heaven comes this huge white sheet, and it drops out of heaven. And on this white sheet are every kind of food that is not kosher. Every kind of food that a Jewish person was not to eat. And there was a statement, a word from heaven, God speaking, said, Peter, eat these foods. And Peter said, I can't eat these foods. These foods are unclean and impure. And God says in reply, what I have made clean and what I have made pure is clean and pure. And then the sheet goes back up to heaven and it comes back down, and it repeats the whole thing again. And then it goes back up to heaven, and it comes back down, and it repeats the whole thing again. What is this about? Why does God have to do it three times? Because Peter is so hard-headed. 
it was so hard for him to grab hold of this whole idea. I am to give up all the Jewish food laws? I am to give up pushing away non-Jews? I am to change my whole way of thinking? Two minutes after that vision happened, there was a knock at the door. And the two people at the door were two Roman soldiers. And they came and said, we are coming on the behalf of our boss, a Roman centurion. He is a God-fearer. He loves God, but he doesn't know how to come to know God. He didn't know how to get close to God. And as he was praying, God said to him, send two of your soldiers down to Joppa, a little town, and to a particular house, and there is a man in the house whose name is Peter, and bring him back. And so here we are. Is your name Peter? Yes, my name is Peter. We need you to come with us. And God spoke to Peter's heart and said, Peter, this is for me. And Peter went with them, went to Cornelius' house, and and shared the gospel of Christ. And in a moment, Cornelius accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, and all of his household came to faith in Christ, and they were the very first Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and there was an evidence of that, and there was a sense of my soul and body, everything has changed. But when news got back to Jerusalem and there were some of the Jewish converts who had accepted Christ heard about this, they said, oh, no, no, that cannot happen. They must first become Jews, Jewish converts, and begin to do all the rules and regulations and all the laws, and then they can accept the Jewish Messiah. But if that is what was going to happen, it would have killed Christianity from the very beginning. Meanwhile, God is touching the heart of a man who is one of the greatest leaders of all time and bringing that man into faith with Christ. His name was the Apostle Paul, and God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I've told you all this because of this. Here are these two guys. Here's Peter. Here's Paul. And they are both in the same town, at the same church, at the very same moment. They are at this church in Antioch. The church of Antioch was the largest and most influential Gentile church of the first century. It was here that people were first called Christians. This is where the name came from. It was actually a name of derision. You're just Christians. A Christian, that word Christian actually means little Christs. You're just little Christs. Well, they were enamored with the word. It was a badge of honor for them. They said, keep calling us that. We love it. Keep calling us Christians. It was the church of Antioch that was as ethnically diverse as Sugar Creek Baptist Church. It was amazing. Look across this worship center right now. Look at all the ethnicities in this room. Look at all the different shades of skin in this room. All the ethnic backgrounds in this room. 
It is absolutely amazing. And this is exactly what the church of Antioch looked like. You know why? Because Antioch was located in a strategic place in which there were major roads that went through it, and all of the trading to the east and west and the north and the south had to come through this same town called Antioch. And people would come from all over the world. They'd hear the gospel. they accept Christ as Savior, and they would stay right here in this church. And it became an amazingly ethnically diverse church. Here is Peter. And when Peter arrives, he has given up all of his old prejudices. He is eating with Gentiles. He is laughing with Gentiles. He is fellowshipping with Gentiles. It is absolutely amazing. And then all of a sudden, into the room comes a couple of guys from Jerusalem, and as soon as they walk into the room, Peter totally changes. He gets up. I don't want anything to do with Gentiles anymore. Just suddenly. I'm not going to eat with Gentiles. I'm not going to fellowship with Gentiles. I'm not going to laugh with Gentiles. And all the old prejudices came back as soon as those guys walked into the room. Peter had such influence that all the other Messianic Jews in the room did exactly the same thing, including Barnabas, who is the all-time good guy of the Bible. And that brings us to verse 12. Listen to what it says. When Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. There is Paul. He is standing there. He watches the whole thing, and he can hardly believe his eyes. He becomes furious. Notice what happens, verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for he did, what he did was very wrong. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws, did you read that with me? Peter has discarded the Jewish laws. Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like these Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the Jewish law. What this means is that you and I can try our hardest. We can do every good thing, every good deed we can imagine. We can try our best to be as good of people as we possibly can be. 
But no matter how good we somehow think that we are, our goodness cannot save us. What saves us is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And now by faith, He is the one that saves us. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by following a list of Old Testament rules and laws or anyone else's rules or regulations. We cannot earn our way to heaven. There is only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus the Messiah as our Savior. Do I hear an amen anywhere in this room? It's true. This is how we come to know Jesus as our Savior. This is how we come into right relationship with God. Now, Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 16 are saying these things, but they're also saying something else. So what else is God teaching us in this passage? Be a loving person, but not a people pleaser. Be a loving person, but not a people pleaser. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. It is obvious that we ought to try to please our parents. We ought to try to please our siblings. We ought to try to please our friends. We ought to try to please people at work. We ought to try to please people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ in church. It's not bad to please other people. There's nothing wrong with pleasing people as long as we do not become a people pleaser. So does that sound a little confusing? How are both parts of that sentence true? The definition of a people pleaser is a person who will compromise an important principle or give in to a wrong action just to get along with others. A people pleaser is a person who demonstrates no real courage, who demonstrates no real moral character. They are trying to get along with others because they're afraid of being rejected by other people. To be a follower of Christ and to live by a right kind of life, we must be willing to stand for right even if it means that we have to stand alone. Parents, listen to me. One of the greatest things that you can build into the hearts of your children is to teach them right from wrong and to help them have the strength to be able to stand, be willing to stand for right, even if it means they have to stand alone. It's one of the greatest things you can build into the heart of your children. And some may be saying, well, I'll wait until they become teenagers, and then I'll teach them how to do this. No, if you wait until they become teenagers, you've waited too late. Well, there's no such thing as waiting too late, but if you wait until they become teenagers, you've waited too late. Because while they're growing up, if you don't teach them little by little by little, 
the difference between right and wrong, and being willing to stand for right even if others are not willing to stand with them, if you don't teach them that as they're growing up as children, by the time they become teenagers and young adults, you will not like the end result. One of the things that my parents wanted to build in the life of my two sisters and I, and us three, was understanding the difference between right and wrong and being willing to stand for right, even if it meant standing alone. And one of the things among a whole list of things that they tried to build into our life along that line was the idea of loving people no matter their color of skin, no matter their origin, the country of origin, no matter who they are. It was very important to my parents that their children would grow up and not be racist, not reject people simply because of their race. One day, I had several momentous occasions along that line, but in one of those, I was in middle school. And I should have known better than to make this statement to my dad, but after all, I was in middle school. And so, I came home from school, and I said to my dad, I heard a racial joke today. And he stopped me in my tracks, and he said to me, Mark Stephen, did you laugh at that joke? Now look, when my dad would use my middle name, it meant that if I mess up the, ne the next answer, it could mean my life. I, I, the, the, the calling out of my middle name was a warning, get this right. So I said, would you repeat that question? Just, just repeat the question. I just want to make sure I get understood. Mark Stephen, did you laugh at that joke? Now, quite honestly, my dad's in heaven, so I, there's not a one thing he can do about what I'm about to say. But I, am, I don't know. I don't remember now whether I did or not. But my answer was, no, sir. I did not, and that will be my answer even when I get to heaven. I will be saying exactly the same thing throughout eternity. And my dad said to me, if I ever catch you putting down Jewish people or any people, I will tan your behind. And I'm just here to tell you, from experience, he meant that, and it happened actually several times, but I didn't want it to happen again. This meant something to him. During the same period of time, I was in middle school, my mother one day said to me, because we lived in a little town in Oklahoma, and um, she said to me, Mark, she sat me down one day and she said, Mark, I... I only know of one black family that lives in this town. There may be others, and I just don't know about them. 
But I do know that there is one black family that lives and just lived a block and a half from where we lived. And she said, they have a son and he's close to your age. His name is Ricky. And I want you to make friends with Ricky. I want him to be a friend and you be a friend to him. Now, I think Ricky was either a, a year older than me. His name was Ricky Birdwell, and he was a year older than me or a year younger than me. I don't remember now which, but he was close to my age, and she said to me, it's really important that you build a friendship with him. So he is welcome in our house anytime. And if they ever invite you into their house, you have permission for me that you can go into their house anytime. And she said, uh, when, when you're not in, in somebody's house and you're just go out and go ride bicycles and go play ball and spend time with Ricky, I want you to be his friend because in this town, Ricky needs a friend and I want you to be that friend. Part of the reason that my mother wanted this to happen is she wanted to make sure that Ricky had someone he could count on. But she also wanted me to build a relationship with someone who was not white and to have that experience and that learning. All during the time I was growing up, these were kinds of lessons that they taught my sisters and I. It was very important to them that we be this kind of person. So now fast forward, I'm 18 years of age. And at 18, I, uh, we live now, we'd moved out of Oklahoma, we had moved to Maryland, we lived on the Maryland side of Washington, D.C., where I spent all of my high school years. But when I'm 18, I am going to college, and I am in my first year at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Shawnee, but it's not very big and uh, just a small town. And so when I got there, I'm 18 years of age. This has just been my personality. One of the things I wanted to do was go explore around Shawnee. And so I drove to downtown. It's three blocks. I drove to downtown, parked my car, and I started walking the streets and going in and out of all the stores. I know that just sounds so dorky, but I did it anyway, and it was just my personality. So I was walking along the sidewalk, and as I was walking along the sidewalk, there in front of me, about four paces ahead of me, was a, a, a black woman. She was very old, and coming toward us was a white woman, and she was very old. Now, I was 18 years of age, and anybody over 30 would be considered very old, but I've gone back and I've thought about that a little bit, and they were very, very, very old. I will not give you a, what I, a guesstimate about their age, because someone in this room is going to be that age, and then you're going to be very upset with me. So just know they are very, very old, much older than you, whoever you are in the room. <laughs> and so here we are. I'm about four paces back behind this uh, old black woman, and there is an old wo white woman coming this way. So I'm walking with the, in that direction. And when the white woman and the black woman were about to cross, before they crossed, the white woman spat, not at the woman, but in front of the path of the black woman, 
so that the spit would land on the concrete just before she walked across it. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. It took two nanoseconds, though, and I had it all figured out. And up comes this anger in me. I really believe this is righteous indignation. This is what this, up comes this anger up in me. And I go right into the face of this white woman and I said, what have you done? This is wrong. What you did is wrong. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Well, this woman, who is this kid? Who is this guy? And she was stunned, and she quickly walked around me and kept on going. And then I hurried, and I got in front of the black woman, and I turned, and I stopped her. And I looked in her face, but she did not look at me. She looked straight down, and I said to her, Ma'am, I am so sorry that this happened to you. It is wrong, and I am so sorry what just happened. And then that old woman looked up into my eyes and looked at me in the eye. And it was just the saddest look. I can still see it. And then she looked down, and she went around me and kept on going as if to say, you can't do anything about this. You can't change anything. I've thought about that story so many times over the years. But one of the times that I was thinking about that story, I thought back to how I had been taught by my parents and it dawned on me what they had wanted to teach me was the difference between right and wrong and to have the courage and the strength to stand for right even if it meant standing alone and it had just happened in that moment without any pre-thought what they had tried to build into my life had just been demonstrated I thought as we were raising our two sons that one of the greatest things that I could build into the heart of my two sons was to the difference and understanding of the difference between what is right and what is wrong and the willingness to stand for right even if nobody else will stand with you. And that is what Kathy and I tried to build into our sons and we have seen it become reality in them. I'm saying to you as parents, you cannot push this away to another day. One of the things you must build into the hearts of your kids is an understanding of right and wrong. And to help fortify them with the courage to stand 
even if it's alone. It is not enough to teach our children right and wrong. It is also necessary to teach them how to stand for what is right, even if all their friends go the other direction. It is about courage and character. In this story, here is the Apostle Peter, the big guy, and he fails. He fails because he is trying to be a people pleaser. So what causes a person to be a people pleaser? First, the fear of rejection can make us a people pleaser. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, the fear of others is a trap. When a person begins worrying more about what other people think than what God thinks, that person is becoming entrapped. It is exactly what happens to Peter. You are never going to please everybody. And the people that you please today, all it's going to take is one decision that you make or one, one thing that you do, and suddenly they don't like you anymore. You will never please everybody. The truth is God can't even please everybody. How in the world would you and I think that we could do what God cannot do? So give it up. You don't have to please everybody. The applause and the public opinion is very fleeting. What we must do is adopt values and truths that are based upon the Bible. What does God say is right? What does God say is wrong? Who cares what my friends say? Who cares what the article on the internet say? What, who cares what that poll that I just read say about what people think? Who cares what this culture says? It is what God says. Now listen to what the Bible says. It's not in your notes, but write it down, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what it says. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. There are four key words. The first is true, the second wrong, the third corrects, the fourth teaches. And one guy said, you understand this verse the best by thinking about the verse as being a path. You see, there are so many people, many of your friends don't have the slightest idea what the path to the future is, where they're going, they're living by the seat of their britches, and they're just living one day at a time and don't have the slightest idea where they're going. But you have a path. You have the Word of God that is a pathway for you. And this pathway will show you what is right. It'll show you when you get off. What is wrong? It'll show you how to get back on the path, and then it will show you, it will teach you how to keep staying on the path. God will never lead you in a wrong way, and when your friends are going in one direction and you follow God in another direction, you will experience rejection. You will, but it's okay. Learning how to stand for right, even if you have to stand alone, is one of the greatest and most important lessons you will ever learn in life. It can also hurt. I'm not saying it's easy. But I'm saying that if your life is going to be used for great things, you've got to learn this life lesson. 
because if all your life you are a people pleaser trying to please everybody else, your life will never be used for anything great. You will be led around by the nose by those friends of yours, and those friends change from year to year. No, you've got to know what is right and wrong. You've got to make a decision. I'm going to do what is right no matter who says what. And when you come to that place, you will have an awesome life, and God will use you in a powerful way. There's a second thing. Trying to be someone you're not can turn you into a people pleaser. Every one of us are unique creations of God, and He has given to you talents and abilities and spiritual gifts. He has wired you the way He has wired you, and one of the things that God has placed inside of us, all of us are limitations. He has given us obstacles that we must overcome. Have you thought of that? Part of how God has wired us is He's given us talents and abilities and spiritual gifts when we come to know Christ as Savior. But He has also given us obstacles and things that we don't know if we can get on the other side of that we have to struggle with and work with. But in so doing makes us stronger. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this, We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. While they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Boy, that is really kind of confusing. What it really means is this. Stop trying to be somebody else. Stop trying to live somebody else's life. Live yours. Be the best you that God has made you to be. That's what it means. Galatians 6 verse 4 says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. All comparison does is make you jealous. All comparison does is to make you distrust yourself and who God has wired you to be. Stop doing it and start trying to be the very best that God has made you to be. Be the very best that God wired you to be. And all the while, God changing you to be like Jesus Christ more every day of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of giving together and worshiping you together and opening your word. And this passage in the book of Galatians. Oh God, would you rescue us from being people pleasers? Of having no backbone, no moral compass, no true north. And going with whatever the wind sways us to. Show us what is right from what is wrong. And give us the strength and moral fortitude to be willing to do what is right, even if we have to do it alone. Build strength and character in hearts today, put iron in our hearts.
and strengthen our backbone and use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.